So George Whitfield is arguably one of the greatest preachers in church history. God gifted him to the church, and there was a great awakening that happened in America and England during this time period, uh, which we'll talk about tonight. Uh, but as we begin, I want to start with the historical background of George Whitfield. Right? What, what was going on spiritually in England and in America in the time when George Whitfield was raised up? So Whitfield was born in 1714. It was about 200 years, roughly, after the Reformation. So after the Protestant Reformation, about 200 years later, um, George Whitfield is born. And so for us to understand Whitfield's life, we have to understand the spiritual climate at the time. And so he's born in England, and in 1662, there's, there's a, a massive event that occurs. Uh, English Parliament um, had become highly anti-Puritan, and they legally reestablished the Church of England as the Church of the Land. So it became the established Church of the Land with the monarch as the supreme governor. And so in May of 1662, the Act of Uniformity was passed, and it required all clergy to submit unconditionally to the doctrine and worship of the restored Anglican Church. And so what happens following this event is almost a thousand Puritan clergy um, either leave or are kicked out of churches. And so uh, this is just a massive impact to the church as, as, as over a thousand faithful ministers leave the church of England. Um, and then uh, two years prior, 700 Puritans had left because they had required ministers to acknowledge that the royal, the, the royal king is supreme over the church. And so 700 ministers leave. And then two years later, another 1,000 leave. So in England alone, 1,700 Puritan ministers are out of the church, faithful men that were preaching the gospel. So men such as Richard Baxter, many of you may know who he is, Thomas Manton, uh, were expelled during this period. And many of these pastors would end their days in prison for preaching the gospel uh, in an unauthorized manner. They, they weren't allowed to preach the gospel uh, outside of an English church during this time period. And following this, law after law was passed uh, constricting non-Anglican worship. So again, they kept passing different laws to make it more and more constricting for preachers to preach outside of the English church. And so the bright light that had been the English Reformation, because the, the Reformation moved from Germany and across Europe, and there had been an English Reformation, that bright light and the, the vibrant faith of the Puritans began to die out. And so deism became rampant in the churches. There was a spread of what's, what's called deism. And deism, they believe in an impersonal God. An impersonal God who a lot of people call it like the, almost like a watchmaker. Who makes this watch, makes the gears, winds it up, and lets it go. And that's kind of how our God, the, or the God of deism, was portrayed to be. It was this God that created everything and just let, lets it go. Rather than a personal God who's imminent with his creation and sovereign over all things. And so this idea of deism, this anti-supernatural uh, religion was spreading within the churches of England during this time. And in America, uh, many of the founding fathers did believe in deism. They, they weren't all Christians. And so Christian historians have described England during this period as foul and with moral corruption, crippled by spiritual decay, and unfettered by licentiousness. A people who threw off restraint and plunged heedlessly into a course of godlessness, drunkenness, immorality, and gambling. So this is that spiritual climate that Whitfield is born into during this time period, where all these Puritans have been kicked out of the church about 50 years prior, and the effects of it have been felt in England. Right? The, England, the English churches are struggling. There are faith, faithful preachers, but very few during this time period. Preaching lacked zeal. 
during this time and passion for the glory of God. And so among the religious strife in the land, there was one mark of general unity among the churches. And it centered around a fear of something. It was a fear of what they called enthusiasm. And so they applied this idea of enthusiasm to anyone whose Christianity manifested any type of fervor, any type of passion for Christ and the gospel. So they felt that prayer and preaching were a threat to the peace in the land. And so preaching of the gospel with passion, with zeal, with fire, was something that they feared, and they would label as enthusiasm. And so preaching in the land became what they describe, what historians have described as quietly dispassionate, right? Dispassionate preachers preaching dispassionately without zeal or passion for the glory of God and for Christ. And so this is the world that Whitfield enters into, a world that Whitfield would not conform to. It's a world that he would be outside of in many ways. He would be an outsider preaching the gospel in a manner that few were preaching. And so in contrast to the dispassionate preachers, Whitfield said this. He said, I love those that thunder the word. The Christian world is in a deep sleep, is what Whitfield said. He said, nothing but a loud voice can waken them out of it. Nothing but a loud voice can waken them out of this deep slumber that the church has found itself in. And God created Whitfield to be that loud voice that preached the gospel in a parched land. And so now we're going to look at the, the early life of Whitfield and his conversion. Whitfield descended from a family of Oxford grads and ministers. So he had a long line of, of other members of his family that went to Oxford that became ministers. Uh, they were in an upper middle class family, so they were somewhat well-to-do. His parents owned an inn, uh, which that inn actually also had uh, like a playhouse attached to it. So as a young man or as a young boy, he was in there witnessing plays, learning from people how to speak in front of others, how to, in a sense, act in front of others. Though a preacher isn't an actor, they do have to use hand gestures and be able to draw people in. And so he learned some of these things while he was at that inn that his parents managed and owned. But his hopes were dashed of being an Oxford grad and following in this long line when his father died when he was very young. And so what happened was his mother remarries when he's eight years old, and his stepfather basically runs the inn into the ground. And so it starts to struggle financially. It, it doesn't really prosper again. And so his hopes to go to Oxford and to have that life that his, his family went ahead of him and lived was, was dashed at this point. But one day his, his mother, while at the inn, hears from someone about this program called the Servitor Program, where someone could go as a student and be a servant to the more well-to-do students. And so his mother is excited that now maybe he can still go to Oxford. Maybe he can still be that minister that she hoped him to be. And so he goes to Oxford as a servitor, as a servant to other students. So a servitor would be a lackey to three or four students of higher means. Uh, he, would take, he would wake them in the morning. He would shine their shoes. He'd run errands for them. He'd tidy their rooms. And sometimes he'd even do their homework for them. Right? This is all things that he would have to do as their servant. All the while, he's having to do all of his own studies at Oxford uh, during this time period. And in addition to that, he would have to wear special garb. He'd have to wear special dress that identified him as a servant. And so he would have this mark of shame that he would be looked at upon in a negative light because he was a servant of the lower class, right? Not only that, but the people of the upper class, the higher classmen, were not able to talk to him. It was culturally unacceptable for them to talk to Whitfield because he was a servant. And so this is the experience that he has at Oxford. 
And many of the servitors never graduated from Oxford because they would leave because of the humiliation that they faced. So they would face great humiliation, embarrassment uh, on a daily basis, and they would never graduate with that degree that they fought so hard to try to, to go there for. And so these three years of servitude, they certainly left a mark on Whitfield. It would have been an education of humility for Whitfield, as he would have to humble himself every day in this role that he would have had. Especially considering that he was from a family that had great means. They had owned an inn, and they, they were that upper middle class family that had, was doing well, and all of a sudden now he is in this servant class. But Oxford, like the culture around it, was in a state of decline during this time period. And so one of Whitfield's friends, he describes Oxford, and he says this. He says, Oxford is where learning keeps its loftiest seat, and hell its finest throne. So a place of intellectualism, but a place where the things of God are not important. Right? And many great ministers had come from Oxford, had, had gotten theological education at Oxford. But during this time period, uh, this, this young student who's, who's in that track of, of learning theological education is saying it's a place where Satan and hell are on the firmest throne at Oxford. But Whitfield, though not saved yet, tried to abstain from such a lifestyle as the other students. Whitfield really tried to live uh, what he would describe as a holy life. He tried to be set apart. He tried to be very disciplined in how he lived. Uh, during this time period. But he wasn't able to talk to anyone of another class. But fortunately, there was another young man, Charles Wesley. Though he was of the upper class, he took an interest in Whitfield because he saw how disciplined Whitfield was. He saw how Whitfield tried to live a life of holiness. He set apart. He wasn't engaging in the drunkenness and debauchery of the other students. And so Charles Wesley took an interest in him and he took him under his wing in many ways. And he invited him to what they called the Holiness Club. And so the Holiness Club was, was these group of men, Charles Wesley and his brother John Wesley, and then a handful of other men that were meeting and trying to live out the Christian faith. But they were doing it with nothing but religious fervor, not with true faith in Christ. So it was a group of unconverted men who didn't know that yet, but were trying with all zealousness to earn their salvation in many ways. And there's comments that you can read from John Wesley and Charles and even Whitfield himself that makes it very clear that they did not understand the gospel or justification by faith um, and were unconverted. And so they're meeting, they're doing these meetings, they're fasting, they're praying, they're doing all the, the spiritual disciplines that Christians should be doing, um, but it's all aimed in the wrong direction. And so um, later, Charles, those of you that don't know, Charles Wesley becomes the famous hymn writer. John Wesley becomes, again, another famous evangelist, just like George, a preacher. Charles would preach too, but more famous for his hymn writing. Uh, John Wesley, famous for preaching and for ba basically being a religious organizer who will be known as the one that founds Methodism, though it was actually Whitfield that starts the Methodist um, kind of, you, uh, we won't call it denomination, but the movement of Methodism is really started by Whitfield and his preaching, and as he's organizing new religious societies, um, it's really George Whitfield that starts it. But John Wesley is a great organizer, and Whitfield will turn over the reins of Methodism to him later in life. And so that's why we'll, we'll talk about the theology of the two of them later. But they were known for this self-discipline. They were the type of young men that any pastoral search committee would love to hire. Right On the outside, they look very holy and righteous. They're doing all the right things. They are getting an Oxford education in ministry. 
and they would be your top candidates for any pastoral search committee. They're very eloquent men. They're well-spoken, very intelligent, but all unconverted at this point in their life. And so Whitfield is the first one in the group that becomes to be dissatisfied in the, the religiosity that they are living in. And he becomes very dissatisfied with this. And it's John Wesley that actually gives him a book. The unconverted John Wesley gives him The Life of God and the Soul of Man, which was written in a previous century by uh, Harry, Henry Skugel, who is a Scotsman. And so he writes this book um, in a previous, the previous century. John Wesley gives him this book when he's still not yet a Christian. And he says, it alarmed him because the book contradicted everything that Whitfield believed about salvation. It contradicted his understanding of salvation. And this is how Whitfield describes it in his journal. He said, God showed me that I must be born again or be damned. I learned that a man may go to church, say his prayers, receive the sacrament, and yet not be a Christian. How did my heart rise and shudder, like a poor man that is afraid to look into his account books, lest he should find himself a bankrupt? So Whitfield would first spend more, he would write this in his journal, he would still, even though he's coming under conviction, he would spend more time trying to work out his salvation in his own strength, only for it to nearly drive him crazy, much like when you read the account of Martin Luther, it begins to drive him crazy as he's trying to now, with even more fervency, work out his salvation. But ultimately, this book starts to cause him to understand that he can't do it, that he, he utterly cannot do this. And he says this, he says, God was pleased to remove the heavy load, to enable me to lay hold of his dear son by a living faith and by giving me the spirit of adoption to seal me even to the day of everlasting redemption. Right, so Whitfield comes to recognize that it is by grace alone in Christ Jesus. That it is, it is by faith through God's grace in sending his son. There's nothing that Whitfield can do in his own strength, and he is saved. Now, shortly after being saved, Whitfield begins to sense some sort of calling to ministry, to preaching. And he properly understood that there's a weight to this calling. And so he was very reticent to follow in this calling. And he spent much time in prayer, reading scripture. Uh, He took time away from Oxford, went back home, uh, only to return later to Oxford to finish his degrees. But he would take time at home and read the scriptures. He would read his, his Greek New Testament and pray and study it. And, and during this time, he would, the scriptures would be ingrained in him to where he could preach without preparing at times. And he would just preach extemporaneously is, is what he called it um, because he began to know the scriptures so well. He became so acquainted with them through praying over them and reading them intensely. And so as he begins to pray about this calling that he, he is sensing God is putting on his heart, he takes one of his sermons. He writes a sermon out. And he sends it to a Reverend Sam, Samson Harris to review his sermon. So he desires a, a more senior minister in the gospel to look over his sermon, to give him some feedback on it, right? Young pastors will, will do this, right? A lot of times uh, you have us up here, we're, we're preaching, and Brian will give us feedback, right? And so that's what he's looking for. He's looking for some feedback um, on, is this something that maybe God's calling him to? Has he been gifted in sermon preparation and possibly sermon delivery? And so this, this Reverend reads his sermon and he takes it, and the next Sunday he preaches George Whitfield's sermon, right? <laughs> and so he, he doesn't do it. He's not trying to steal his ideas. He, he actually pays him for the sermon. So he sends the sermon back to Whitfield in the mail, 
uh, with one pound, paying him for the sermon, thanking him, and uh, clearly letting him know that he enjoyed the sermon because he chose to preach it on Sunday morning, right? And so this, for Whitfield, confirms that God has called him to preach the gospel, that God has called him to preach uh, and to go out and to evangelize uh, in, in this, this time where it's very parched spiritual land in England. And so, meanwhile, meanwhile he begins to preach. Uh, he, gets, he gets ordained at 22 years old. So he's still very young at this point. He's 22 years old. He becomes ordained in the Church of England. Um, he tr- still tries to do most of his ministry through the Church of England. He sees it more as a Reformation movement than him trying to work outside of the Church of England, though he will begin to be more and more pushed out by the Church of England over time. Um, so in 1736, he's ordained at 22, and he preaches the very following Sunday, um, and, and many mocked his first sermon. Uh, they mocked him, they scorned him, um, but many were deep, deeply struck by it and came under conviction. Um, there was actually a complaint to one of the bishops that his sermon drove 15 people mad. And so, yeah. And so when they talk about driving them mad, they came under conviction. They became troubled by their sin. They, they became, began to recognize, much like Whitfield, that there's a problem here. And so Whitfield would portray a deep sense of our spiritual brokenness, our spiritual bankruptness, right? Because he came, became, he recognized this in his own life, and he began to preach it boldly. And so we see that even in his first sermon, we see people coming under conviction of their sin, the weight of that burden of sin on them. And so then we see him kind of move into his early ministry period, and he begins to preach in, in pulpits in the Church of England. He, he begins to preach more and more, and immediately the pews begin to fill up. Immediately people start to come to hear this message that Whitfield is boldly preaching. And during this time, he begins to get lots of lucrative offers to be a pastor. He's clearly gifted in preaching. He's very eloquent, as, as we'll see more of later in his preaching um, and so many of these congregations that are more well-to-do offer him very lucrative positions, uh, of which he turns down. He's still trying to decipher where God is leading him. He's discerning what his calling is. Um, but meanwhile, Wesley, the Wesley brothers go to America. And so they feel called to leave England to go to America to preach the gospel. And two other members of the Holiness Club also go. And at this time, we still know Wesley, uh, the, both the Wesley brothers are not converted so they're going to America, uh, unconverted. They don't last long. Charles uh, returns almost immediately with one of the other Holiness Club members because of hardship and because of physical ailment. So almost immediately they return. Uh, meanwhile, John Wesley will write to George Whitfield from America, uh, letting him know that there's a great harvest in the colonies during this time, uh, letting him know that there's a great need for gospel preachers uh, during this time. And so Whitfield hears of this, and immediately he's struck by it. Immediately he senses this calling to go to the colonies to preach the gospel. And so he has this this deep-seated desire after reading John Wesley's letter about the needs there to go there and to preach, to come to America to preach the gospel. And so meanwhile, it would still take about a year before his first voyage between the planning and just between uh, wrapping things up in his personal life, and then he begins to preach during this time. And so there's about a year that goes by between when he has this calling to go to America and he's preaching. And meanwhile, he's continuing to gain more fame, and more people are offering him more and more money, of which he's going to turn down to go to America, which only at this time is going to give him hardship and struggles, because this is America in the 1700s. 
before America is the America that we know it today, broken off from England. And so he turns all these down so that he can, he can have this focus on going to America. Um, but meanwhile, meanwhile, he's thrust out into a ministry which begins to startle England. And so during this year, his ministry begins to flourish in England. And so uh, more and more preaching events is, is he's getting, and he's going across England preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, and, and people are responding to this message. And so the, the churches of England, they continue to be more and more crowded as he preaches. And so the crowds are coming, they're hearing the gospel. Um, there's, there's many people during the week that are coming. He, he starts to preach almost every weekday. He starts preaching twice on Sundays. Eventually, he will have to increase that to four times on Sundays. So he's preaching almost every weekday and four times on Sundays. And again, he's still, this is the range of 22 to 23 years old, preaching in England on a daily basis nearly. And this is still only very shortly after his conversion, too. And so he is, he is preaching at, at just a grueling schedule um, to preach at. And uh, he begins to minister throughout England. He's in his home in Gloucester, England, in Bristol, in Bath, in London. And again, the, the crowds are coming. And so one thing we have to ask is, why did the crowds come? Right? Surely some came because it was somewhat of a spectacle. The more and more people come, more people are hearing about this man, Whitfield. And so some are just interested in, in the spectacle of what's happening. Right? But many came because they wanted to hear something that was very rare in England. And that was the gospel. It was the gospel of Jesus Christ. There was this works-based Christianity that was being preached. There was this, this dead faith that was being preached. And he was preaching something fresh and new, even though we know it was not new. It was the same old gospel, and that's what he was preaching. But to them, it was new. It was a new form of preaching. A man who has passion, who's preaching boldly, and they're flocking to it. And they are responding and so Christian truth and evangelistic zeal uh, marks his sermons. Um, and again, those who had this sort of zeal were ostracized in the Church of England. They were called enthusiasts. And so he began to be known as an enthusiast. Um, and, you know, even nowadays, there are many people that are enthusiasts, like true enthusiasts, where, where they're of no substance in their preaching, but just a lot of, of movement and a lot of, of using fine language and trying to make interesting and fun sermons, but there's no content but that was not Whitfield by any means. And so it was a, a term that was used to denigrate him, and it would be used to silence a preacher ultimately. Because if you begin to be labeled as an enthusiast, you would be silenced. People wouldn't come to hear you. The Eng English churches would begin to bar their doors and their pulpits from you. But again, his preaching is unlike anything people have heard at this time. He's preaching boldly concerning the things of God. He's preaching with doctrinal conviction. He's preaching with biblical content, and he's preaching with great eloquence. He was gifted in preaching. This is what Benjamin Franklin, who later will become his friend, says about him. He says of Whitfield's preaching, he says, Every accent, every emphasis, every modulation of voice was so perfectly well-tuned and well-placed that without being interested in the subject, one could not help being pleased with the discourse a pleasure of much the same kind with that received from an excellent piece of music. He's saying Whitfield's preaching is like a beautiful piece of music. Every, every word that he's using is eloquent. There were the, the most famous actor in England actually kind of wrote a little piece like basically being jealous of the manner by which Whitfield could preach. So even the most famous actors in England are impressed by Whitfield's eloquence and his ability to preach. 
But again, Whitfield wasn't just eloquent, it was substantive. There was content to his preaching. He would preach of sin, he would preach of hell, of judgment, and the necessity to be born again. Pointing people to the glories of Christ. And he would do this through vivid imagery, through using beautiful descriptions, and using his gift of eloquence to glorify Christ, not himself. And so this gift of eloquence that he has, he uses it in order to make the things of God known to England and and to America, and, and we'll see in other countries also. But despite the growing crowds and the popularity of this, this, this message, there were many who began to despise Whitfield. Some parishioners hated that their pews were being overrun by the new crowds. So that's not just a, a modern church issue, that we get upset when we have to sit in a new seat or sit in a gym instead of a pew because people are coming to hear the message, right? So even in England during this time, people are mad that they're having to give up their pews because people are coming to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. What a sad reality. Others called him a spiritual pickpocket because of his success in raising money. He would raise money for charity schools. Uh, He would start an orphanage in Georgia, in America. In Georgia, he would start an orphanage uh, where he taught Christian truth to young orphans uh, and raised them up and and taught them also how to be able to have a successful career, actually be able to gain uh, employment and to be able to work. And so he would gain money for the orphanages Uh, these charity schools, and for the poor. And so Whitfield was not one that preached the social gospel, but he realized that the gospel goes social, right? That the ordering must be correct there, but that the gospel does go social and that we should care for the least of these, and that is exactly what Whitfield did. And so he used his gift of preaching to raise money for these, these organizations. And so, again, many people would call him a spiritual pickpocket as he was doing this, and many accusations would be raised against him throughout his life Uh, because of that. But what drew him into conflict with the established church more than anything else was his message on the new birth. His message that one must be born again in order to be converted. This, more than anything else, would upset the Church of England. He began preaching that all who had not experienced regeneration were not true Christians. So if you're not truly regenerate, you are not a Christian, which we should all acknowledge as truth, right? If you're not born again, you are not a Christian. But this is what the Church of England became very infuriated by. And so around this time, Wesley, though, he writes this. Charles Wesley, he writes this about Whitfield and about what's happening in England because of this preaching. He says this. He says, the whole nation is in an uproar. All of London and the whole nation ring of the great things of God done by Whitfield's ministry. So he's saying the entire nation is in an uproar because of this gospel that's being preached. People began to sing hymns in the streets and were living changed lives. They were going into the workplace and now sharing the gospel with one another. They were inviting people to Whitfield's events and coming to hear him preach. And there was a change that was happening that Charles Wesley, as he's coming back from America, sees that something has changed in the entire nation of England while he's been away in America. Meanwhile, things aren't going well for John Wesley, who's still in America. And so as we look to Whitfield going to America and his American ministry, again, his paths will cross with John Wesley. And so we'll see this throughout their lives, is that their two paths will cross at many points in their lives. 
And so Wesley's ministry is not going well in America. He had gone there, he, he says this, he says, I have gone there to convert sinners, but later he would recognize that he himself had not been converted. So he, uh, he went there to convert sinners, but yet he recognizes later that at that time he was not truly converted. And so on Wesley's voyage back to England from America, he meets some German Moravians, uh, which was a, a Christian group at this time, uh, and they seem to have a genuine faith. They begin to, to talk about their faith together, and then one night there's a, a great storm on the boat. And everyone thinks they're going to die. And what Wesley notes is that all of the English people on the, on the boat were greatly incensed with fear. And they were very fearful that they were going to die. And meanwhile, the German Moravians begin to sing, sing hymns. And they're at peace. And again, this troubles John Wesley greatly as he sees the confidence that they have, even facing what they thought was certain death on this voyage and so this begins to cause John Wesley to question his faith. Um, but first, his brother would get converted. So he, he is not converted through this event, but much like Wesley, he begins to come under conviction and is starting to really think through um, his so-called faith. Uh, but first, Charles Wesley will be converted. What happens is there's a printer in England who gives Charles Wesley a copy of Martin Luther's commentary on Galatians. So he's reading Martin Luther's commentary on Galatians, and he can't make it past the preface. So he reads the preface and comes under instant conviction, right? And he would have been reading about justification by faith and reading about the gospel, a gospel which he did not understand yet. And he begins to come under great conviction through this. And so he would ultimately be saved through this event. He would recognize that we are justified through faith in Christ alone and not through your good works like they, they tried to live out. Um, in their own flesh. And so he goes on to write this hymn in response to his salvation, And Can It Be? Right? So most of us know that hymn, And Can It Be? He writes it in response to reading Martin Luther's Galatians commentary and God saving him. So shortly after this, the fear of the storm that had brought on John Wesley's conviction starts to continue to work, and he goes to a, a prayer meeting where they're reading scripture and they're reading Christian works. This time, it's Martin Luther's commentary on Romans. It's being read publicly, and again, they barely get through the preface of Martin Luther's commentary on Romans, and he begins to see the same truths that his brother and George Whitfield before him began to see that they didn't understand as members of that holiness club. And so, again, uh, this, this work of Martin Luther's is being read later in church history, and ultimately... Wesley would go on to famously say uh, that his heart was strangely warmed um, and that he trusted in Christ during this event. And so again, this is church history at work, right? This is why we're talking about church history. We talked about it last week. Uh, Stephen talked about the importance of studying church history, that those that gone, have gone before us uh, can point us to Christ and to what faithful living looks like. And so you see Charles Wesley, John Wesley, and even Whitfield all being saved through God using Christian works from those who had gone before them as they're reading these books um, from great Christians who have gone before them and written about the things of God. Um, ultimately, these are things that God uses uh, in, in them understanding the message of the gospel. But just prior to these events, John Wesley and Whitfield will cross paths as one is 
leaving America and one is going to America. So John Wesley is returning uh, from America and they both land in a port uh, in a place called Deal and they land there together. They both know that they're in Deal, uh, but John Wesley will refuse to see George Whitfield. Uh, we don't know exactly why, uh, but most people think it's because he was despondent, he was discouraged and depressed. Uh, he still was not saved and his American ministry had gone horrible. Uh, he was almost chased out of the colonies uh, because of some events that occurred uh, while he was there. And so he, he's most likely very depressed. Meanwhile, George Whitfield has had that year of preaching, has become very prominent. And so I think that for John Wesley, most scholars believe that he just couldn't handle meeting Whitfield uh, during this time. But what he does is he writes Whitfield a letter, and he tells him not to go to America. He had cast a lot. And the lot had fallen on Whitfield not going to America. It was a practice that John Wesley would later abandon, uh, but early in his faith, he was doing a lot of casting lots and um, just kind of opening his Bible randomly, another practice that he would stop doing, uh, but trying to look for instruction by these means. Um, and so he tells Whitfield not to go to America. He says he cast the lot, and uh, the lot fell on, on Whitfield returning, and that Whitfield should return back to London. And this caused Whitfield great pause. He had great respect for John Wesley. I mean, they were, they, were, they, were, they were great friends. They went back to their Oxford days. And so Whitfield really questions whether he should go to America at this point. He begins praying about it. Um, but ultimately, he becomes resolved that the gospel must go to America. And he believes that because John Wesley has left, that even more so now should he go to America. So again, he, he doubles down on it in a sense, and, and he, he is resolved that he must go to America. And I praise God that he did, because the, the landscape of American spirituality is much different because George Whitfield came to America. If George Whitfield had turned around, Christianity in America may have looked much different than it looked, and the first great awakening may not have happened. We know God will raise up people to achieve his purposes, but from a human level, uh, that, that's what it would look like. And so the events of him coming to America would again forever impact this country. And he would come here, it would take four months for him to travel here. So imagine that type of journey. It takes four months to get on a boat from England and to come to America. And so he has spent four months coming here. During that time, he ministers greatly to all the sailors. Uh, there's actually a great change. There's, there's an event where um, they are sailing in, in the ocean, and it's a calm day, and all three ships come as close as they can, and George Whitfield preaches from the middle ship. And again, that is a testament to his preaching, the, the, his vocal range, that if you can imagine three ships next to each other with, with wind and, and just the noises of the ocean and for him to be able to preach. Um, and it, it, it was a testament, too, to his impact on people because when he got on that ship, no one wanted him there. And by the end of it, when they left, they were singing hymns. He had catechized half the, the sailors. Uh, he had done a great work on that ship, and he called it his floating congregation. And so no matter where Whitfield went, the most important thing was the gospel. It didn't matter if he was on vacation or if he was on a ship. He saw the whole world as his congregation and people for him to preach the gospel to. His first journey to America was, was fruitful, but it was only for about three to four months. It was a very short time period, and he would go back to England. Um, but meanwhile in England, so before we get to his return to England, uh, many of the clergy, they really breathed a sigh of relief when he left. They hoped that he wouldn't return, that he had gone to America and, and maybe he wouldn't return. Uh, they hoped that his influence would fade away. They hoped that it would just fade into the distance, his, his influence that he had had on the people. Uh, but God had already begun a great work on the lives of the people who had been converted. And so there was many new converts in England as he leaves. And so 
The Church of England may think that they're done with Whitfield, but now they have all these new Christians that are now also zealous for the things of God. And so the, the English people, they begin to ask their clergy if they're born again. So they take this message of Whitfield and they start asking their ministers, are you converted? Are you born again? And they're asking their own pastors and preachers these things. And really, it's a question that we should embrace as Christians, right? If someone asks me, am I born again? Praise God, I am, and let me tell you why, right? If you go to your clergy here, your pastors here, they're going to be very happy to tell you that they are born again, and they'll tell you their testimony and the events surrounding that, right? But that's not what happened in England when people began asking these, these ministers if they were born again. Uh, the unregenerate clergy, they were incensed by this. They were very upset by this. And so, again, this is really one of the, the marks of, of contention between Whitfield and this clergy is this newfound focus on being born again, the, the new birth, the awakening, as Whitfield would call it. And so, uh, due to this, uh, Whitfield, actually, this becomes one of the marks of the revival, is that Whitfield would preach that ministers must be converted. Uh, novel concept, Right? Novel concept that uh, someone that preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ should understand and believe that gospel. But to them, this was something that was a huge point of division and contention. And so this is what Whitfield would say in regards to this. He would say this. He said, the reason why congregations have been so dead is because they have dead men preaching to them. So congregations are dead because dead men are preaching to them. And again, he would emphasize this reality of being born again, as the Bible clearly puts forth for us in the Gospel of John. And so still, he's only 24 years old at this point. So at 24 years old, England has become nothing but hostile to him as far as the Church of England. And this is the world that Whitfield will now step back into as he leaves America and comes back to England. And this is ultimately which will, this will thrust his ministry in an entirely new direction. From here, his ministry will go out into what he called the open air. His ministry will no longer be a part of the Church of England in the manner by which he desired it to be. More and more churches were shutting their doors to Whitfield. They wouldn't allow him in their pulpits. There's very few people that would still allow him to preach from a Church of England pulpit. Ultimately, he didn't want to work outside of the church, but it became a necessity if he was going to preach this gospel message. And so with much prayer... And from counsel from other godly men, he decided to go out into the open air. He wasn't the first. Uh, there was actually another man named Howell Harris. Uh, he, was a Welch, uh, he was a Welchman. And during the time, he was also preaching open air and was taking a lot of heat for that. It was, this, it was an outlandish idea to people in that, in that time. And so he knew that if he went into the open air, it would cost him any semblance of reputation that he had among the clergy. He knew that that would be out the door at that point once he makes this commitment. He would be surely labeled an enthusiast, though he was already being labeled that, and it would create a bad reputation for the entire revival movement. So the entire movement would, would, would get these labels on it because of what was happening. And so his first outdoor sermon, he preaches in, in King, Kingswood, England, is where he preaches. He preaches to about four to 5,000 people only to return the next day to about 10,000 people. So he goes out into the open air, he does this in faith, and God blesses it, and thousands of people show up. Many come under conviction during this time period. And so picture this, there's nearly 10,000 people in the open air, 
There's no microphone, and there's no speakers. I'm teaching tonight with a microphone in a small room with at most 35 people, and I have a microphone. Whitfield's preaching to 10,000 people with no microphone, just in the open air, no acoustics, and they could hear him. He would continue these efforts. He would travel throughout England. He would meet crowds ranging from 10,000, 20,000, 30,000, some estimates 40,000. One of his journals says that he preached to a crowd of 80,000. Many people think he was young and embellished a little bit there. But either way, we're talking tens of thousands of people. And this is the, this is the amount of people coming to hear the gospel from this man. Crowds that had never been assembled before like this. God had clearly given this gift to Whitfield. There are few people probably in the history of the world that could preach like this. There are probably few people that could ever get their voice to such a vocal range for that many people to hear. I mean, just think about that. God clearly gifted this man to do that. At work, I sometimes give messages to about 100 people. And I like to think that I can talk a little, I have a decent range, and they still struggle to hear me. 100 people. And sometimes afterwards they say, I missed that. What did you say? And it reminds me of Whitfield preaching to 10,000 and they can hear him. And so God clearly gave him this gift for the task that was ahead. This is what Arnold Dollymore had said. So if anything of this has interested you tonight, I encourage you to read Arnold Dollymore's biography on Whitfield. It's a two-part series. It's, it's long, but it will be the fastest read of that length that you'll read. It, it is very enjoyable. Uh, and you'll see a, just a vivid portrayal of George Whitfield. And so um, I do commend that to you. But this is what he writes in his biography of Whitfield when he speaks of the crowds and Whitfield's preaching. He says this, that the crowds were the largest ever reached by a non-amplified human voice, he says, in the whole history of mankind. And this was the ministry of a youth of 24. So Dolly Moore, and again, Right, We can't verify, there are certain times in history, we can't verify how large crowds were people spoke to or preached to. Um, but he is saying that in all of, all of history, there hasn't been another human who has preached to crowds of this magnitude and to where they've heard him. And so in Bristol, meanwhile, he's leading nearly 30 meetings a week. And the combined total of people coming to hear these on a weekly basis is forty to 50,000. Uh, the, the masses were coming to hear this, this gospel, this newfound gospel in England. Right, And so the masses are coming. Uh, this is what Charles Wesley says again of Whitfield. He says that he turns the world upside down and he shakes the gates of hell. And, and that's what was happening in England during this time period. And the masses are just coming out. But in turning the world upside down, he did suffer much along the way. It wasn't all just glorious and easy. The mobs would come and harass him and intimidate him and his people. They would intimidate him so that he wouldn't preach, but he would preach. He would find a way to preach whether or not he was being harassed and intimidated. He, fe he faced threats upon his life. He was once bludgeoned over the head during one, events, one event. Uh, he would frequently have rocks thrown at him, and he would have dead cats thrown at him. Yeah, that's actually a thing. I, th I thought it was just like on the cartoons. Um, but yeah, there are many accounts that they would have de dead cats thrown at him or, or pieces of dead cats thrown at him during this time, and he would continue preaching through these things. 
And one mob destroyed the, the pulpit. He would carry around a portable pulpit. Sometimes people would just get a table. They'd bring a table out and put it in the, the square, and he would preach from a table. Uh, they'd try and yank the table out from under him. They'd try and break it, um, and he would find a way to preach, no, no matter what was happening. Uh, there were some accounts where his people would surround him in a circle and, and, and try and defend off any of these people trying to harass uh, him from preaching. And so, again, other people suffered on account of getting that message out. Uh, the, the congregants would suffer, uh, would, would be beaten severely so that Whitfield could preach. So it wasn't just Whitfield suffering, it was the people suffering too along the way. He attended one Sunday service only to find himself the subject of the preaching. So he is there and this preacher chooses to preach against George Whitfield while he knows George Whitfield is there. Think about that, you come to church and Brian starts preaching against you. I'm not sure how long we'd last in that service. Um, but that's what happened to George Whitfield. And this is the types of things he faced on an everyday basis when he preached. Uh, but in addition, he had chronic health issues. So at times, he would just have sheer ex exhaustion from traveling. Travel wasn't easy back then, and he was preaching multiple times a day, uh, which is tiring in and of itself, especially uh, the manner by which he preached with much zeal and passion. Uh, he would be exhausted. And uh, many accounts show that he would be bedridden up until moments before preaching. He'd be bedridden and didn't think he'd be able to preach, but he would say, the grace of God has come upon me, has given, the Spirit has given me strength to preach. And he would get up and preach and then go back to being bedridden and just, just sleep it off as long as he could until the next time he preaches. And he did this at great physical cost to himself so that people could hear the wonderful news of the gospel. And that's how much he loved Christ and the gospel but not everyone was hostile. Not all the unbelievers were hostile. Again, uh, America's founding, one of America's founding fathers, Benjamin Franklin, was a good friend of Whitfield. Uh, they, they had a very close relationship. Uh, Benjamin Franklin would become Whitfield's primary publisher in America. So he was publishing his sermons, his journals, uh, some of his writings. He didn't write books, but some of his writings were published. And Benjamin Franklin was one doing it in America. I mean, it's, it's amazing to see kind of this overlap of church history uh, with history of America. And Franklin was so impressed by his preaching ability, at one of the events, Franklin paced it off because he was a little skeptical about these accounts of how many people were showing up. Benjamin Franklin was a very intelligent man, obviously we know that. Um, and so what he did is he created a formula of how many people were probably in every square foot of the crowd, and he starts to, to pace that off. And he calculates that there was about 25,000 people on this crowd. And he paced the outskirts of it, and what he says is as he's pacing the outskirts of this 25,000-person crowd, he could hear Whitfield clearly. So again, Whitfield's not just preaching to thousands, and no one can hear him. They're hearing him clearly when there's 25,000 people in the city streets. And so, it's, it's, again, it's this amazing account. Sadly, Benjamin Franklin, as we know of, never heeded any of Whitfield's warnings. This is what Franklin himself says. He says, Whitfield used to pray for my conversion, but he never had the satisfaction of believing that his prayers were heard. So Franklin heard the gospel from Whitfield on many occasions. Whitfield would plead with him. Whit Franklin even knew he was being prayed for by Whitfield. But he never repented of his sins and trusted in Christ as far as we know of, as far as the history accounts. And so next thing I want to talk about is the theology of Whitfield. Uh, that's something we're going to talk about with most of the figures that we look at throughout our church history study is the theology of these individuals. Uh, you can't really talk about the theology of Whitfield without talking about Wesley. Because they interact so much with each other during this time. And so it's helpful for us to look at their theology because it helps to see what shaped their ministry and what shaped their life and what they believed. 
It also helps us as we wrestle with these things, right? Watching Whitfield and Wesley wrestle with things helps us as we try to wrestle with things or other people throughout church history. As we look at debates in church history, heresies, and we study them, it's good for us to do that, even when at times we disagree with things because it helps us to think through our Christian faith. We have 2,000 years of people trying to think through it already. Why not learn from them, right? And so again, it's hard to tell without telling the story of him and Whitfield because Wesley would ultimately push their theological differences out into the open, into the crowds, into the public eye, and would start a firestorm among their followers, which would create much division, unfortunately, sadly, which Wesley, Whit Whitfield really did try to prevent. But their division formed around three key doctrines uh, that Wesley would put forth or attack from Whitfield. Uh, the first one, John Wesley began to reject perseverance of the saints. And so the idea that a Christian who is truly saved cannot forfeit or lose their salvation, Wesley began to preach that a true believer could lose their salvation, whereas Whitfield preached that someone who God saves, that salvation is an act of God that cannot be undone, that those who truly repent and believe will persevere, that God will cause them to persevere by his spirit. As what Whitfield was preaching, Wesley comes along and says, no, a Christian can reject Christ. They can be a true Christian, and then they can reject the gospel, and they they can be not a Christian anymore. So people could lose their salvation, gain their salvation, lose it again, and so forth. The next one was Christian perfection. John Wesley began to teach that a Christian could obtain a, a condition in which the sin nature is eradicated and the soul entirely, entirely sanctified, but would state, and, and he would go on to state that a man can become so perfect in this world that he shall not commit sin. But he shall be without sin and be inherently as holy as God. And so John Wesley's saying that a Christian can reach perfection. He does say by the Spirit of God that, that a Christian can obtain perfect holiness in this life before we die or Christ returns and we're glorified. So prior to glorification that we can obtain Christian, pers Christian or perfection. Sorry. And so again... Whitfield, this is something that Whitfield would have to undo in many Christians and would teach them that, no, there is only one who is perfect, and that was Christ, right? And that there will be a day that we will be with him and be like him in heaven, but we will not reach entire sanctification in this life. That it will be an ongoing thing that God is working in our hearts to be sanctified, to be more like Christ. And the last doctrine, the one that is most hotly debated even today, was predestination, election and predestination. Was, was, this was the hot button for them also. Uh, Wesley preached a sermon entitled Against Predestination. And this would ignite the firestorm between their theological differences, one in which Whitfield would say, let's talk about this quietly and in letter and not in our sermons. Um, but unfortunately, it was thrust out into the public. Wesley in this sermon would say that preaching predestination means it makes all preaching in vain. He would say this of it also, it takes away all motive for holiness. That if we believe in predestination election, there's no motive for holiness. To be sanctified. He would call it a horrible doctrine and a horrible blasphemy. He would go on to say this was the most startling claim of all. That, that if God has predestined us, then God is worse than the devil. He would call it the doctrine of Satan. And so this is what would just elevate this 
issue, this theological issue, into the forefront of the movement for quite a bit of time. Um, there was actually a point where Whitfield leaves America to come to England to try to, to right the ship on this. Like, can we have unity here even if we disagree? Um, and, and in the end of their lives, they did uh, have some sort of relationship. John Wesley ends up preaching his funeral sermon. Um, they did have great love for each other, but these doctrines really split them, sadly, and they still do today. Um, and so again, Whitfield, though, is a great example of a man who could understand the sovereignty of God and freely offer the gospel. And so Whitfield understood that I can understand that God has done, that salvation is an act of God, yet I still need to call for a response, that, the, that, that one must respond to the gospel in order to be saved, but yet it is an act of God. So he understood this divine tension between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And so uh, Whitfield... Uh, again, was a great example of a man that understood God's sovereignty and salvation, but still offered the gospel freely to all people and preached boldly, knowing that God would act. And that's what gave him boldness, actually. He, he would credit those doctrines with giving him boldness because he knew that God would achieve his purposes through preaching the word of God, that it, it would be all left up to God, that Whitfield would preach, he would lay everything out that he has, he would preach with every ounce of strength, even unto death, but it would be God who would do the act of saving one soul. Ultimately, though, Wesley will shape the Methodist movement because, again, Whitfield was, was a very great evangelist and preacher. He wasn't the best of organizers. John Wesley was an amazing organizer. He was a great preacher, too, but a great organizer. And so Whitfield, as he is aging and struggling in health, will hand over the Methodist movement to John Wesley because, again, he, he loved him. And though they had disagreements, he loved him dearly and, and gave the leadership to John Wesley, uh, which is why, typically, you will not see much about George Whitfield in the uh, in, when you look at Methodism as a whole, though he was really the one that started founding the movement, uh, Wesley takes it over, and his theology will end up marking Methodism uh, more than, than Whitfield's ever, ever will. His will, for the most part, die out the next generation. In 1770, Whitfield would pass away at 56 years of age. He's a man who devoted his entire ministry to the gospel at, at great personal cost to himself. So again, this is 1770. This is before, right, the Declaration of Independence. This is for America is the America that we have come to know it. This is, this is very early in colonial life. 1770, he passes away. He once said this, I would rather wear out than rust out. He suffered great from asthmatic colds, and he even burst a bl blood vessel in his neck from preaching. Uh, oftentimes, he would cough up great quantities of blood after preaching. This is a man who has asthma, who has, has all these issues, a lot of it probably inflamed because of his preaching. He gave every ounce of his strength to it. He would cough up blood, sleep it off, preach the next day. Everywhere he went, he would preach the gospel until his last hour. He preached a sermon, went back to bed to be bedridden, and died the next morning. He preached up until the last hour. And like I said, John Wesley would end up preaching his funeral sermon. So again, it shows that love that they had for each other. Even though there was theological divide, there was love for one another that they both had. And so his legacy, uh, he, it said that he preached to at least 18,000 times to 10 million hearers. He would preach in Ireland. He'd preach on Bermuda. He was there for his health and vacation. He ended up just preaching the whole time. He went to Gibraltar and preached Holland, Wales. Went to America seven times. Seven times to America 
Scotland 14 times, and then he traveled throughout England. He visited every colony in America during that time. It was just a frontier land. He, he went everywhere that he could. Uh, it's said that he is America's first uh, spiritual cultural hero in many ways. Uh, he's one of the spiritual founding fathers of America, people have called him. He was a household name back then. More people knew Whitfield in America than they knew the King of England. More people saw Whitfield's face in America than probably any other face in the colonies. And so Whitfield and the gospel was made known in America during this time, and England, and Scotland, and all those other places I listed, because God used him. Some have called him the father of the African-American church. Though he did have slaves, and it, again, just like for Southern Baptists, and for many Christians, the legacy with slavery in America is not a good one. He loved the slaves, and he preached the gospel freely. He was one of the first ones that emphasized we must preach the gospel to slaves, and we must treat them well. And many of the slaves loved him. There was a day where he was bedridden and near death, and there was a bunch of slaves in the window looking down upon him, praying that Whitfield would not die. Martin Lloyd-Jones called him the greatest preacher England has ever produced. Spurgeon says he lived. Other men seem to only half live. But Whitfield was all life. Fire, wing, force, my own model. So Spurgeon's saying, Whitfield was my model. Lloyd-Jones, greatest preacher England's ever had. And again, the first great awakening in America during the 1730s and 40s was much credited to Whitfield's preaching, uh, to the preaching of Jonathan Edwards, a man who Whitfield would meet and, and who he dearly loved and looked up to and would learn from. And so, uh, again, these great men, the Wesley brothers in England, uh, they're, they're, all these men, the preaching that God used started this great awakening in England, in America, and other small nations also. And some of the marks of it, I'm going to briefly go over the marks, is that there was a deep consciousness of the presence of God. That was a mark of the great awakening. This understanding of God and his holiness, his majesty, his justice. There was also an understanding of human sin and depravity. That was a mark of their preaching and of this movement. This was a movement of substance, of substantive preaching. It was a movement that was carried chiefly along through preaching the gospel. That the gospel went out through preaching the Bible, through preaching the word. And the other mark of it is that Christians actually began to share the gospel in their daily lives. That Christians now were going out to work, sharing the gospel, telling them to come here Whitfield, right? Sharing the gospel one-on-one. -on -one. Personal evangelism was happening. It was also marked by transformed lives, which goes hand-in-hand -hand with preaching the gospel in our personal lives. But people were actually being transformed by this. People were actually living lives set apart to Christ Jesus now. And, and people noticed it. Like, like I said, there's hymns being sung in the streets in some of these towns now. People were living changed lives. And the last mark is that it was marked by prayer. There was a deep, a deep prayerful life that was occurring during this time period. And these men were great men of prayer. When you read their journals and you learn from them, you realize that they prayed unceasingly. Whitfield would stop mid-sermon and start praying for people to get saved at times. Whitfield's preaching would be interspersed with prayer. And lest I make too much of a man, because Whitfield is just a man, I'll quote him as we close. He said this, Let my name be forgotten. Let me be trodden under the feet of all men, if Jesus may therefore be glorified. That's what he understood. And that's all church history should point us to that, that we talk about these men, not to make much of them, but to make much of Christ, who they desire to make much of. And that's why we're doing this study. And I pray that it will be fruitful for us. So let me close us in prayer. 
Father, you are worthy of all praise, glory, and honor, and we thank you for the life of Whitfield and the encouragement that it should give us, Lord, encouragement to preach freely the gospel of Christ Jesus, that it should cause us to trust in your sovereignty. Lord, we just pray that you would have an outpouring of your spirit, that, that people would come to faith again like in those days, Lord, that we would see a great awakening, that we would be a people of prayer and a people who live transformed lives, who go out and preach the gospel freely. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.